Welcome to a new audio feature of The Legacy of John Williams. This is Maurizio Caschetto. I'm the editor of The Legacy of John Williams, a website dedicated to celebrate and study the music of Maestro John Williams and its impact on generations of musicians, listeners and professionals of the film and music industries. Today, I'm honored to present a podcast featuring an exclusive interview with trumpet player Thomas Hooten. Tom is principal trumpet of the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra and one of America's best and most talented trumpet players. He just released his first orchestral album, Hooten Plays Williams, featuring a brand new recording of John Williams' Concerto for Trumpet and Orchestra, conducted by the composer with the Recording Arts Orchestra of Los Angeles. is the coronation of a true labor of love from Tom Hooten, who single-handedly succeeded in producing this new recording involving Maestro John Williams himself to conduct the orchestra. In this interview, Tom talks about the genesis of this project and how it became a reality, but also speaks about his collaboration with John Williams, what he thinks of his legacy and his life as a professional musician. So let's introduce Tom Hooden and let him speak about his musical background to kick off our conversation. Hi, Tom. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you again for uh, you know, your support and uh, interest in this. Um, it's been an amazing eight, nine months of super intense planning and practicing and communicating with lots of people. So um, mm. I'm excited that I finally get to release this. Um, so. My musical background, I my grandmother played piano and organ and my dad was an amateur trumpet player. I started quite late, which is uh, kind of a significant part of my musical background because so many people that end up being professional start so early. So I started taking trumpet lessons when I was around 16, which is quite late. And uh, I went to a very small college in my hometown. And then I met a man named Armando Gatala. Gatala was the principal trumpet of the Boston Symphony, and he had changed my embouchure. I had to change my embouchure, which was quite traumatic, and uh, started over when I was about 21 years old. I figured out how to put it back together, and I started in the, the president's own marine band. And so I played four years there, and then I still had my heart set on being an orchestral player, and I went to assistant principal in the Indianapolis Symphony, okay. and then I went to principal trumpet in Atlanta Symphony, and then I went to uh, principal in, in LA. So um, I've been here about seven years, and I love it. I think it's a great city, uh, not only to learn and make great music in the Philharmonic, but uh, 
there are so many creative and innovative minds out here mm. in LA, uh, whether they're musicians or physicists or people around meditation or people around mm. personal growth or entrepreneurs. It's just such an amazing place. So I really love LA and I hope I can stay here for mm. basically my career. So cool. that's, that's where I'm at now. That's, that's great to hear, actually. Do you remember the first time you, you heard the music of John Williams? And uh, what was your first encounter with his music? I don't know if it was the first time, but the first time that it hit me. It was when, I, maybe this happened to a lot of people, but I was the first time I heard Jurassic Park in the theater. Okay. You know, this whole helicopter scene, you know, that everybody's yeah. talked about. And I just remember being just mesmerized and taken aback, just like, Wow! I just remember walking out of the theater, and that's all I could remember. It was like I want to, I want to see that moment again. I want to hear that moment again. So, so that was really the first time, and uh, you know. But then, pretty much for the next twenty years, it was all of his movie music. I, I never knew anything about his like first stage music, and, and mm. you know. So that was much later on. When was it the first time you performed with him as a conductor? must have been it must have been here in LA like mm. 2013 or something like that so pretty recently actually so yeah, pretty recently, yeah. Oh. and uh, he has a very uh, close relationship with the Philharmonic more now than when I first got scenes he just seems to be around all the time mm. uh, whether he's conducting at the Hollywood Bowl or you know kind of schmoozing with Dudamel or um, <laughs> yeah he seems to go very well with Gustavo yeah he likes a lot and you know, he's inviting Gustavo to conduct some of his movie music and you know I John's very shy he's very kind of reserved at least from what I can tell for the most part and but he'll he'll say little things and there's such a curiosity in his um approach to life you know he's not very open about it but okay. But, you know, I told him a couple of things about Dudamel and he was like, oh, he was so interested in, in how Dudamel like interacted with the orchestra mm. and how Dudamel uh, approached some pieces and rehearsal technique. And I, I found that really cool that, um, you know, even somebody who's done more than most people in their life musically, he's still really curious about, you know, the way some of, you know, today's stars are, are going about things. I thought that was great. Yeah, absolutely. It seems that he maintained a kind of a childlike spirit, which is reflects also in his music, I think. curious about your the whole project that you worked on uh, last September you started that Kickstarter campaign to record the concerto for trumpet and orchestra by John Williams how this project was born and what was your main inspiration in trying okay. such a venture um, so that's a lot I can tell you a lot about that so <laughs> I, last year in about May or June I had played with John it might have been a year and a couple of months before we actually recorded it I saw him at the Hollywood Bowl and I said oh I just wanted to let you know I'm I'm playing your concerto in Japan in Nagoya I'm excited about it and I just I just wanted to share that with you and he goes oh well 
I don't know if I like if it's that good. He was being very <laughs> humble, and I said, "No, no, no, I, it's great. I love it." I said, and I said in passing, um, "I would love to record that. I would love to put together a great recording of that piece." And you know, he was very sort of gracious and okay, great. And so then he sent me a letter after we recorded the little clip from Lincoln. He was very complimentary, and he wrote, "And if an opportunity should present itself." to record the concerto, I would, that would be wonderful. And I was kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> you know, like, he was just being nice. Yes. And so, so fast forward, I start thinking and getting comfortable in LA, and I've been here six years, and I'm like, I want to be up to something. So I said to a friend, you know, maybe I could, I'd like to record something with orchestra. And he said, well, I know some people in Bulgaria, there's a recording orchestra over there, it would be much more mm. economical than yeah. LA. And I said, okay, so I started looking into that and contacted people at this orchestra. And, and then I had lunch with a friend who's quite an amazing person who started a company here called Street Symphony. He was an orchestra member and incredibly brilliant guy. He got into the orchestra when he was like 19, I think. Mm. His name is Vijay Gupta. And he said, Tom, why don't you just record it here with John? Man, no way. It's just, it's going to be crazy expensive. And he said, you'd be surprised. You, you, you might be able to, people will, people love John. You have fans here, you know? And I thought, I don't know. You know, so this was in uh, May. Mm. And so I, I was like, okay, hold on. Let's just try this. I want to email John's assistant. And I'm just going to see, first of all, is he even interested? Mm. If I, I said, if you could do it these dates, would you do it? So I sent an email. A couple of days later, I got a response that said, those dates look promising. And I went, really? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, he's like, I can't guarantee. It, this whole process was like a timing, you know, like strategy and how do I. Mm. So I said, well, what about September? His assistance that I can't guarantee anything right now, but sure. I said, okay. Okay, well, let me start crunching some numbers. I started talking to all these people, like, what would it cost? And it was, at first, it was a lot of money. Like, it, three times what it would cost in Bulgaria. This is where the whole thing shifted. We played our last concert in the Philharmonic for the winter season, which was like... Um, May 30th or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the very next day, after our season had ended, before we have some time off before the Hollywood Bowl, we had a, a fundraiser event um, at the Hollywood Bowl where a brass quintet played. I, I see this man there that I've seen at the Philharmonic a bunch of times, and I don't know anything about him. I barely know his name. I, I don't even know if I knew his name, except he had a name tag on. He was obviously doing something there helping the Philharmonic and so I just struck up a conversation with him I said um yeah how are you doing you know what are you doing this summer and he started talking blah 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 he said well what are you doing I said well I'm trying to put together this project where I have to raise a lot of money I don't know how if I'm gonna do it I'll be able to do it I'm super excited and I said you know it's this project with John Williams I want to record his concerto I think his music is great I think most people listen to his stage music like concerti kind of like they're listening to movie music, but it's it's more intricate, it's yeah. more sophisticated. Yes. I would love to put a recording together that gives due attention to those things, mm. you know, and brings yeah. out more of his genius. Yes. So we were talking and I was I was talking about it in a very passionately and very authentically. And he says, I'll pay for half. You have to raise the rest. I said, Okay, I'll do this. <laughs> so, 
his name is Jerry Cole, and he um, he owns a company called Brighton Jewelry. He was like the major backer, and I started creating a strategy. I said, he, you know, it's all he's going to do a matching gift. And so I got a little bit deeper into the finances. Like, I need to know exactly what this is going to cost. Okay. It ended up being a little bit more. I went home that night, and I was just overcome with, like, excitement. Like, I think this is going to actually yeah. happen. And then I went, oh, did he hear the number that I said? Because we didn't talk about how much he would give. I'm like, did he think I said, instead of, like, $80,000, did he think... I said, $8,000? I emailed him and I said, are you sure we're on the same page, right? Like, he was like, absolutely. And and he was unbelievably generous. And that was really the, the initial catalyst that said, I have a backer that's going to make this happen. And then I asked the people who endowed my chair at the Philharmonic. They did another quarter. And then the Kickstarter, in, in all honesty, I probably didn't need to do the Kickstarter. Probably could have gone to a couple more board members and said, "Hey, I'm really close. Can okay. you help me finish?" But and, and look, I, just the honest truth is that the Kickstarter has been an absolute. It's been amazing and a huge time commitment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wrote I wrote over a hundred thank you cards, and you know, and I loved it because I got to see every single person who was interested and who was supportive of me. Um, but I also wanted to just see if people were interested in being part of it. Yes. You know, yes. if there's like 10 bucks or 20 bucks and, and we invited people to come into the booth if they wanted to. And some people were like, John Williams is, you know, my favorite composer mm-hmm. and I had the means to come and watch him do this. And it was a cool event for them. So yeah. I thought it was cool to offer that as a opportunity to people who really love his music. So that's kind of how it all came. And then I can't even tell you how many probably thousands and thousands of emails and planning. (laughs) My wife was a humongous part of of making all the logistics happen. And John ended up writing a new ending to the first movement. I don't know if it's been heard before. I've done it before with the Marine Band, but I don't think it's commercially available. And I think it's also good for the piece because now people don't have to commit to playing a a 21-minute piece if Mm. they want to do a first movement that's a little okay. more accessible. But it was, what an amazing learning experience for me, an opportunity to work with really, I mean, one of our, the generation's most influential composer. Yeah. Just He's just absolutely, and the, the other thing that I noticed with him was that where he pulls his ideas from, again, he's not writing them down in some journal probably about like, oh, I liked this chord in Debussy or this yeah, yeah, chord. Yeah. But, you know, he'll say, he made a couple of references in the second movement to, I wonder how Miles Davis would have played that. Okay, that's good to know. I, I didn't think about it like that, you know? And so it was really cool to, to see him work like that. And then to see how sharp he was mm. and how quick he was to understand how to get certain ideas across in the music. Because mm. we had a piano rehearsal with him. He was... He would be changed this like what about diminuendo here change that rhythm here and then well crescendo here and I would hold this here Don't be too loud. It wasn't that he was controlling. He was just throwing all these ideas out And I thought I wouldn't remember all these if I didn't write them down and he remembered every single one Yeah, all of them to the score. I think this matches with some other recounts that I collected from other people who worked with him and as players as musicians He's very much hands-on about what he's uh, doing at the moment but then when he start to 
to recollect, to remind himself about what he did, uh, then he starts to change things. And that's very, that's a very unique uh, attitude, I think, for musicians. He seems to be very hands-on, you know, kind of in the kitchen. I don't know if you get what I mean. How much work did you do with him in rehearsal? Well, he, he did say sort of regretfully, he's like, I wish we had had more time to rehearse some of this, but we had a um, one two hour rehearsal, maybe a little longer with him in piano. You know, he just wanted to hear what I was doing. One of the things he requested was like, I just want to hear how fast you want to go and like where you want to take some artistic liberties. But I think the other thing was that he wanted to, like you say, get in the kitchen and sort of like, just mess around with mm. things. And um, I mean, in that rehearsal, he, he changed rhythms. We, ch- we made one or two note changes, which I wasn't expecting. I didn't even know we were doing the new movement until like a week before the recording. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, I better, and it's not, it's not that easy. It's, it's, you know, it's yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say we like rehearsed it to death, but mm. um, I mean, he made significant changes. That, that was the thing that not only did he donate his time, He didn't, I didn't pay him one cent for conducting or being there that day. And that's very generous, yes. And the other thing I noticed is that when I step into a little portion of the John Williams world, I mean, we're talking like about decades of of experience and like a business. I mean, could I get the score for this? And then like the next day a courier drops it off at your door Mm -hmm. or like that night at 11 o'clock, you're like, oh. Well, you didn't need to do that. You know, it's like no messing around. Okay. It's, it's super professional, super respectful. And I think this all comes from John's demeanor and how he treats people. And his whole team treats people like that. And, you know, and, and even using like his editor and his engineer, all, all these people are just incredibly respectful, working at the highest level. Um, trying to get the greatest product, not just doing a job. I, that was really cool to step into and see, you know, how they say sometimes like, you know, does the storefront match the store? You know, it's like, yes, yes. The way he is, is how his whole team works. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting for me to experience that and to just to witness it and, and learn from it, honestly. Yeah, very much so. I guess it was a beautiful experience. I'd like to touch a little bit upon the music itself, I mean the concerto, because uh, it's a very demanding work for the soloist. It has, you know, so many things going on. Uh, It's very bright, it's very joyous, but also calls for, I think, a very controlled and warm playing at the same time. I think that this is a work that shows a very joyous side of John Williams, 
but it's quite a different kind of joyous side than his most famous film scores like you know Indiana Jones and Superman and Star Wars where the trumpets and the brass section has a very very prominent role what were the, the main challenges for you in learning and practicing the concerto and how do you see this work in comparison to his more famous film music I think that you know but the, the question when you talk about joyous like what what is joyful for one person and what is joyful <laughs> another person some people you know they won't like the pace of LA some people want to live in you know Kansas or something and it's <laughs> beautiful and it's more you know relaxing and so there might be joyful and then that you know you're you're driving down the interstate at 80 miles an hour and some people say no I'd rather have 30 so I think I I think the joy from this piece comes from the idea of uh, I don't know I I keep I'm, I'm gonna just guess at how to explain this but For instance, the first movement starts with this sort of like declaration, you know, this kind of like fanfare and like bright lights of other people. Mm. It's sort of like, a, I almost want to think of it as like teamwork and collaboration and sort of, you know, you have these clarion calls from other instruments and stuff. Yes, very, very bluesy also as well, you know, that's this beautiful warm motif that starts the the movement. It's, it's kind of Gershwin meets, you know, Miles Davis, something like that. Even be more loose and more like let it just be bluesy, you know. Yeah. But it 
I, I had a hard time letting go of that. <laughs> that, that. That's me, you know. But the last moment, I sort of feel this joy and the, I kind of feel the joy of being a little clever and kind of uh, the energy of like, sort of like you're pursuing something. And one of the things we talked about in the editing process was making sure that the beginning of our the last movement had this kind of like healthy anxiousness. Like, you're kind of like, I'm going for it, going for it, going for it. And then whatever it is, you know, sort of like kind of coming out of one shell, you know, and it it would try to come up and then it would come back and it would try to come up again. And then finally you get to moments where it's just unleashed. And and it's not just the soloist. That's why it's, you know, concerto for trumpet and orchestra. (laughs) And soloist unleashes is almost like a, permission for the orchestra to say yes we're going to do this and then the, the orchestra parts are just fantastic There's yeah. just, it's john williams you know you can hear that it's him but it's but it's celebrating the sound of the orchestra rather yeah. than than kind of catering to a film or yeah. catering to a dialogue it's it's pure and pure uh, an orchestra sort of in the playground I think that he probably also played trumpet when he was very young and he also played in uh, in concert bands and brass bands but the trumpet specifically seems to be a, a very dear instrument to him also in his film music and of course you also recorded the main theme for Born of the Fourth of the July which has right. a beautiful trumpet solo all throughout and um, in film music mostly the trumpet has a, has to be the soul of the American of an idea of an American person, so to speak. I think you're probably right. Um, one thing about the Born of the Fourth of July, you know, to back up a little to the planning process, one of the complications with doing something like this is the American Federation of Musicians, okay. the, the union, you know, and, and making sure that we dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's that okay. we needed to in, from the contract. And thank goodness Peter Rotter, who's a very influential contractor out here, helped me immensely um so we weren't actually initially going to do born on the fourth of july Mm. and the union said well if it's going to fit into a certain contractual uh, requirements we have to have a little bit more music which was kind of funny you know is there something else that john would like to record and he said well why don't we do the born on the fourth of july you know it's it's never been recorded except for the soundtrack and my first thought was 
how am I going to do it any better than Tim Morrison <laughs> did it? You know, like what? Yeah. I've listened to that recording a thousand times. How can I just not do what he did? So, in some ways, and this is a little bit diversion from what you're, you know, probably primarily interested in, but but as an American trumpet player, and as an um, a person who grew up listening to like the Chicago Symphony and the yeah. New York Philharmonic, yeah. and tried to get an idea of what that meant. What mm. does it mean to be an American trumpet player? Yeah. And what things do I want to uphold and what things do I want to put my own spin on? And so I kind of think of this, you know, Chicago Symphony was known for this very strong, very um, exciting, but it kind of fit into like, I'm in charge. I sort of feel that, Not I'm not saying it's bad. I just think that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah have discography that sort of supports this very general assessment of course it was some of the most beautiful trumpet playing ever but it kind of had a, a propensity towards a certain characteristic mm -hmm. than say european trumpet playing yeah. one of the things that i thought about a lot and i talked with him a little bit and i got unsolicited feedback from him was that maybe maybe it doesn't need to push so much mm. You know, like the little theme in the middle of the Born on the Fourth of July. It's very cantabile, yes. Yeah, very song-like, so, yeah. I think he, he sort of was like, and, you know, because as the soloist, I thought, you know, should it be, you know, you know this kind of like yeah. vibrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think I let it come back more. I let it be a little bit more... A little bit more personal yeah rather than trying to prove something or or something like that it was he he was like you know it's okay and he wasn't so i don't think he was criticizing he was just very encouraging yeah like, you don't need to do this you don't need to fill this ideological norm and so i really appreciated that in terms of helping to steer or add to the american trumpet and so it, yes i think his His music in the films is so strongly around trumpets and we love it and it inspires new generations of people. But I love that I had the opportunity to record this Born the Fourth of July and, and maybe add a little bit more uh, options yes, for yes. the American trumpet player.
you know, it's very easy to pinpoint or sometimes to, you know, to stick a label on every composer, every artist, and, you know, and when you come to know better uh, the, the, the breadth and of the output of John Williams, both for the film and the constant stage, it's incredible because he wrote so many music for so many instruments, so many concerti. So it's very, very important to, you know, to, to put the spotlight sometimes not just on the big famous things that we all love, of course, but also to the to the to the pieces that are lesser known and probably worth of our time to to listen and to study. I mean, that was really the number one reason why I wanted to do this piece was to make a recording that would spotlight more of his um, the breadth of his abilities. That was really the number one. Of course, you know, I I'm also interested in my own career and aligning myself with great composers and great people but that was really the number one thing and what do you think his legacy will be in that sense one of the things that inspired me most about him which really didn't have as much to do with how he wrote music or what he wrote or the films he wrote for is i just keep hearing this theme around him and some of it i see a little bit firsthand and some of it i hear anecdotally from mm -hmm like his assistant or people around here, is that John is dedicated to his craft. And every day, maybe not, I don't like to use absolutes, but yeah. more days than not, well, I, I asked him, he, he would get up early, five or six in the morning, and he would write for several hours, you know, and have sort of like structure. And I said to him, this not too long ago, I said, so I, you, I've heard that you get up very early every morning. And he goes, well, <laughs> yes, but I, he said, I've had several approaches over the years. Mm. And so love that. I love that he, you know, he is dedicated to his craft and he sets quiet time and time to reflect and time to listen and time to think and time to make mistakes and, and write things two or three minutes of music a day. Look at the legacy of that. I mean, yes. look, look at the result. I mean, my goodness. So I hope that his legacy is not only that he, you know, he knew how to strike an emotion through music and, and bring out the best of like a visual. I mean, because of course I was listening to something the other day. I'm like, if, he, if his music wasn't there, it would have been just yeah. silly. Yeah. You know? like, yeah, yeah. He's, it's amazing. Like, I, I don't even know if I could say like how does he do that i mean but i think the underlying of it is like what what should the next generation learn and i talked to i just got back from a recital tour this week i had the opportunity to give master classes and recitals but i also had two or three opportunities to speak to the larger music school at, at large like i would speak to a couple hundred people about okay. their careers in music and and i love that and i think that that opportunity that the key is that allowing yourself to make mistakes and dedicating yourself to your craft and and working through that and learning and being open and you know the discipline that he's clearly had i mean you can't make up what he's done i mean it's not like he had a team of composers and he wrote a couple good things and yeah. they all wrote around yeah. it i mean this guy knows it through and through and he's this encyclopedia of experience that He's kept his head balanced and humble and um, grounded and dedicated to his craft. I, I oh. hope that's his legacy in addition to the the no-brainer stuff of like, I love this film and its music. Because yeah. if it's just that, I don't want people – it would be terrible if people just said, oh, John was a genius. He was amazing. It's like, yeah, but 
look how we went about it. You know, the daily commitment to always learning and always thinking and, and always tinkering with, like you said, he wasn't just like, I wrote this and that's the way it is. I'm, mm. He's not tied to that, like, you know, in an emotional way. He's always curious. How can I just refine this? And that's, there's a word that the Japanese use is called Kaizen. It means like many, 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 many small improvements over time. Mm. Not, not these big sort of lunges, but like, and that's, that's what I look at, you know, and, that's why his career is just still on fire because he yeah. he's just in these distinctions and he's so efficient and ah, that that's what I hope his legacy is. And that's actually the reason why I also I started this project of mine is because you know he's been so inspiring through his music uh, that I think I have to find a way to you know to take an inspiration from him and pay back a little bit these huge, huge things that, you know, he, he gave all of us who loves music and who loves film and who loves, you know, music making. And, and that's another thing that I liked about him a lot is that he's very, even he's now 87, you know, he's still very hands-on in the music making process. He likes to, you know, to get his hands dirty and say, let's see how we can do it better. And maybe next time it will be even better. So that's probably the, the, the greatest thing about him for me. Did you also play the John Williams concert that was done with the Gustavo Dudamel? Yes. I think that we're taking that on tour. We're gonna go. Oh, cool. Uh, so our tour is uh, we're gonna do all John Williams concert in Korea and Tokyo, and then wow. um, on either night on either side is Mahler Nine and Mahler One. Fantastic. One of the concerts we did four because when usually when Dudamel is conducting, we do four concerts mm -hmm. and so I think it was the third night Saturday night was Gustavo's birthday. On Thursday, John showed up to rehearsal. He showed up at like 10 o'clock. And we had been all told in a secret email that after rehearsal, John is going to rehearse a very special happy birthday that he had written for Seiji Uzawa many yeah, years ago. Yeah. It's kind of like a young person's guide to happy birthday. And so um, John, you know, he was, I think he was just kind of acting it out. And so in rehearsal, he... He would come up, well, you know, maybe we could do this, or and he would explain the music, but he was very much, no, you're wonderful, I'm not going to say anything. So um, after rehearsal, we all kind of pretend to get up, and we're going to leave, and administration, like, kind of whisked Dudamel away for some important meeting. <laughs> and they turned all the sound system off uh, to the whole building so that he wouldn't hear John and the orchestra rehearsing for Happy Birthday. <laughs> so on that on that Saturday, we surprised him. He had no idea. Um, he brought John up to the stage, and um, you know, John took a bow and stuff. And then John's like, "Go sit down." <laughs> He's like, "What? <laughs> yeah, go 
sit down. He's like, what are you talking about? And so they brought the score out, and it was, it was awesome. I think John just maybe loves, he maybe feels the kindred spirit and like the youthfulness and sort of the just absolute authentic love of music and community and reaching out. I, you can just feel, I mean, Dudamel has that all yeah. day long. He's based, he, yeah. He's just incredibly brilliant and thoughtful, but he, he brings this youthful exuberance to everything he does. And it, it honestly took me about six months to fully let go of my classical rigidness, mm. I still I still need to do more of that. But yeah. but you know, but he has this in spades, and it's infectious, and yeah. it's it's such a pleasure to work for somebody that doesn't wince if you miss a note, you know, and you want he'd rather you go for it than not. Last thing, because I don't want to take too much of your time and you're being already very, very generous, Tom. Um, in your website, you say, I'm quoting, I think it's important in life to have the mindset of always being a student and to always continue learning and growing. So what did you learn so far in your life as a professional musician and what other piece of advice would you give to a young music student? A long time ago, when I did this armature change, I hit rock bottom. I, I couldn't play. I, I, I could make a note, but I couldn't play anything that I should be able to, like a simple conconi or something, some song. You know, I, I couldn't do it because it just didn't work. And as a result of that, I had the opportunity to sort of separate myself, Tom, and trumpet player. And because of that, it sparked the possibility of like constant learning because I wasn't always tying my identity to exactly what I could do. You know, my identity sort of, it sort of freed it from just, I'm a trumpet player. And you know, and, and if something terrible happens and I hurt myself, I can't play anymore, that's, I'm, I'll be terribly sad, but I, I'm still me. There was a lady named Carol Dweck, um, and she wrote a book called Mindset. I'll explain it very quickly. So she took a group of students randomly and gave them a simple test. She put it in the half. Mm -hmm. This half, she graded them um, and said to this half, you guys are incredibly good hard workers. You're disciplined. We're so impressed with your tenacity. Good job. This group of people, she said, you guys are clearly intelligent. You're very smart. We applaud you, uh, but you know, just this is obviously <laughs> easy for you. So she took the same group of people and she gave them an extremely difficult test, a test that she knew they would not be able to succeed at. And the first group of people that she had said to them, you guys are really hard workers, they were begging for more time. And statistically, they did better on the test. They, they were saying, please, just can we have five more minutes? Can we work on this more? And this group of people, not only did most of them not finish it, but they got mad. And so what she realized was that when she thrust upon them, she sort of baited them and then gave them identities. You are hard workers, you are really smart. Mm. 
So the people that were really smart, when they came into a contact with something that challenged their identity as being smart, mm. or I'm a great trumpet player, I would never say that. Because the second that I miss a note in a concert, I don't mm. want to talk about it. I don't even want to, no, 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 I'm just, whatever, change the subject. <laughs> The person who's so she talks about mindset. These people are growth minded. I, I just I can always make a, a new distinction and learn a little bit more. And great, that's the opportunity that life and music gives me as a person. Music gives me the opportunity to constantly reflect and bring more of myself into my music. This person, and this happens so often, it's sad that that people latch on to compliments too much mm. they have attachment to this identity i'm a great horn player i'm a great trumpet player and then anything that goes against that is sort of dismissed yeah other than just looking at it objectively well like well i did miss that high note um well i want to try harder next time or i'll what was it you know i look at it objectively so i think that's been a really that was a gift to me mm. even though it was in the form of trauma yeah. i couldn't play for like nine months, it was horrible. Yeah. But it sort of sparked in me like, what, I would look at other friends of mine that were good trumpet players in college, and I'd be like, why aren't they uh, addressing this for real? And I would, I said to students, when you go to the practice room, are you trying to hide your, your shortcomings from people? Or are you actually trying to fix your shortcomings? Um, I sort of forgot your exact question, but but I feel like that's really important. That's that's what's helped me in my career to have a little resiliency. Yeah. Like for example, and, and, and I always I always try to be totally honest in these things, and I try not to like posture myself. But I did this recital tour, and two weeks before the recital tour, it was it was insanely busy. My wife got sick, and my one of my kids got sick, and the orchestra schedule was insane. I probably worked seventy hours each week and I didn't get enough time to really hone in a couple a couple sections in this one solo mm -hmm. and it didn't go as well as mm -hmm. I wanted but what's the bigger emotion the, the more predominant thought is I can't wait to go downstairs and practice it mm -hmm. I can't that's what I can't wait to do yeah. not because I want to prove something but I want to like why like how can I how can I make this a little easier and I think that's I hope I hope that that's going to carry me through my career with, with balance and and a healthy mindset to, you know, finish my career in a way that I feel not jaded. That mm. like I'm always trying to hide and protect yeah. myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. That, I forgot what you were. <laughs> no, question. no, but but you actually answered very well my question because it's about it was about your life as a professional musician and you really explained it beautifully. Tom, thank you very much for, for your time. And it's been a real, real pleasure. And thank you for talking for, for so long with me. I'm very honored. Well, thanks for all the questions. And uh, I had thank a pleasure you. talking to you. So um, let me know if you need anything else. Thank you very all much, Tom. All the best. Okay. Bye. Ciao. Bye-bye. Hooden Plays Williams is now available to listen, stream, and purchase on various digital platforms. Check the link in the article for more information.
Produced by Maurizio Caschetto for the legacy of John Williams.com.